it's a real pleasure to be here and great fun at the um, uh, little uh, impromptu seminar that we did yesterday. I also had great fun, at least in the first part, watching the football game, for which my commiserations to you. They were brave, and they fought well, uh, and it was an honorable defeat in the end. I think that could be said very, very clearly and strongly. Now, what I'm going to talk to, to you about today is something I... It, it, it's a kind of uh, approach that I rarely take. I, I do not generally... Um, go around talking about books that I have done already um, for the very good reason that it's much better for you folks to read the book than to hear me talk about it here. Um, the reason why I agreed to do this is that I know that there are a very large number of people here who have an interest in the topic. And indeed, a number of graduate students who are working on topics that come close to, at least, in some way, what I wrote about in the global Cold War. So I thought it would be a good starting point for for discussion. I'm not going to go on for too long. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll speak for about half an hour, something like that, and then we could do questions and a, and a discussion um, afterwards. In the general approach that still exists to the Cold War, uh, both among historians and among social scientists who are working on, on, on the period and on the issues that are connected, um, to the epoch, the conflict is still assumed to have been primarily a contest between two superpowers over military strategy, uh, over control, mostly centered on Europe. But the book that I wrote a couple of years ago and we'll be discussing today claims, on the contrary, that the most important aspects of the Cold War were neither military nor strategic nor Europe-centered, but connected to political and social development in the Third World. I've argued that while the dual processes of decolonization and Third World radicalization were not in themselves products of the Cold War, they were influenced by it in ways that became critically important and that formed a large part of the world as we see it today. Some of these influences were coincidental while others were brought about through direct interventions. And quite a significant part of the book, for those of you who have seen it, deal with different aspects of superpower interventions in the Third World, as Bob said, uh, primarily in the 1960s and 70s, but also going a bit, a bit beyond that. But together, these influences formed a pattern that, in my view, had disastrous consequences for today's relationship between what could be called the pan-European states, and other parts of the world. So this is a book about history written by an historian, but very much with our own um, time and, and age in mind. Uh, this is a book that would not have been written in the way that it was if it hadn't been for at least it being uh, uh, completed under the impression of the invasion and occupation of Iraq. It's impossible to sit down and write uh, about interventions that have taken place in the past and centering on concepts, debates around, around principles of intervention and non-intervention without being influenced by what is going on around you while, you while you write. What I'm claiming in the book is that in an historical sense, and especially as seen from the Third World, the Cold War was a continuation of colonialism through slightly different means. As a process of conflict, it centered on control and domination, primarily in ideological terms. We can come back to that in the discussion. The methods of the superpowers and of the local allies were remarkably similar to those honed during the last phase of European colonialism. Giant social and economic projects, bringing promises of modernity to their supporters, and death and destruction mostly to their opponents or to those who happened to get in the way of progress. For the Third World, I argue, the continuum of which the Cold War forms a part did not start in 1945, or probably even not in 1917, but with the conferences of Berlin that divided Africa between European imperialist powers, or maybe as early as the mid, middle part of the last millennium, when the Portuguese conquered their first colonies in Africa. 
not even the conflict between the superpowers or its ideological dimension was a new element in this long durée of attempted European dominations. The powers that had intervened before had often been in conflict with each other, sometimes as a result of competing ideas. I think that Joseph Conrad put this fairly well when he wrote in The Heart of Darkness in, in, in 1902, writing about Congo, when, in what is the most searing critique of colonialism ever published, as far as I'm concerned. Conrad wrote, The conquest of the earth, which mostly means taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only. An idea at the back of it, not a sentimental pretense, but an idea, an unselfish belief in the idea, something you can set up and bow down before and offer a sacrifice to. So much for Conrad. The tragedy of Cold War history, both as far as the Third World and the superpowers themselves were concerned, was that two historical projects that were genuinely anti-colonial in their origins, the Soviet Union and the United States, became part of a much older pattern of domination because of the intensity of the conflict, the stakes they believed were involved, and the almost apocalyptic fear of the consequences if the other side won. In the book, I outline the different forms of modernity that the Soviet Union and the United States represented vis-à-vis -vis the Third World. I'm not going to go into that here. We could discuss it um, after... Um, after I finish talking. Um, it is very important, I think, that for many parts of the Third World, in terms of their encounter with American or Soviet power, many of the ideas, many of the ideals, and indeed many of the methods used were remarkably similar. In the book, I compare uh, the Soviet form of high modernism as was tried to be imposed, for instance, in Ethiopia, with some of the American plans for improvement and social change in South Vietnam. And there are indeed very striking similarities. In both cases, it's the peasants who are at the receiving end of these projects. It's they who would have to give up uh, the form of life that they had developed so far and change, transform fundamentally, in order to fit into this new framework. That that is the key of what is attempted. And what one ends up with then, very often, uh, with the support of local elites, and that's an important part in the book. This is not a book about blaming the United States and the Soviet Union uh, for simply moving into the third world and trying to remake it. I mean, they're working very closely with local elites that have their own aims and their own purposes with regard to this. But what it ends up in very often in many parts of the third world during the Cold War is what was a permanent war against the peasantry, a kind of permanent civil war to get peasants to give up their form of life and to change into a new form of society. The wars fought in the Third World during the Cold War were despairingly destructive. Since they were mostly wars against the peasantry, the best way of winning them was through hunger and thirst rather than through battles and bombing. The methods of these wars were to destroy lives rather than to destroy property. In country after country, in Kurdistan, in Guatemala, Vietnam, Angola, Ethiopia, just to mention a few that I deal with in the book, peasants were taken off their land, out of their villages, and given the choice between submission and starvation. Even after the battles were declared over, governments continued to wage war on parts of their peasant populations. Much of what the IMF and the World Bank, in their 2020 wisdom of the late 1980s and early 1990s, called mismanagement and indifference, was in fact warfare, intended to break the will of recalcitrant peasant communities through destroying water resources, irrigation systems, pastures. The cultural violence was sometimes as bad as the physical. Millions of people were forced to change their religion, their language, their family structure, even their names, in order to fit in with progress, as seen by their leaders and their foreign supporters. Now, already during the late colonial era, in the late 19th and early 20th century, these attacks on peasant communities gave rise to new forms of ideological resistance, of the kind that so some sociologists would call 
identitarianist, affirming, uh, affirming other identities outside the immediate discourses of modernity. These were substitutes for enforced identities, for the programmed behavior or for the patterns of obedience that were both seen as meaningless and often, and this is very important, without any noticeable material reward for the people who were expected to buy into them. As the appeals of socialism and of Americanization waned in the Third World towards the end of the Cold War, ethnicity and religion, exactly those values that Cold War ideologies had attempted to deny in the Third World, became central to many of the political activists in that part of the globe. Richard White, the, the great American uh, writer, uh, sensed this already at Bandung, where he spoke of, and I quote Richard White, a racial consciousness evoked by the attitudes and practices of the West that had slowly blended with offensive religious feeling. Here in Bandung, this is the Bandung Conference of Third World States in 1955, where Wright was a very keen observer. Here at Bandung, he writes, the two had combined into one, a racial and religious system of identification manifesting itself in an emotional nationalism, which was now leaping state boundaries and melting and merging one into another. To some of these identitarianist movements that emerged out of the rubble that the Cold War left behind in the Third World, the pan-European West is the enemy. A massive enemy stretching round the globe in the Northern Hemisphere with colonized outposts in the South, Australia, New Zealand, even in the view of some of these people, Latin America. Because few of these movements have state power, at least yet, and they are generally less powerful than even the local opponents. Some use terrorism to state the case, as happened here in the United States on, on the 11th of September 2001. When they do set up states, which some of them are bound to do sooner or later, it is quite possible that the resentment and the anger that empower them will lead to some form of fascism. And I deal with that in the book, becoming a new source of violence and instability both in their own regions and elsewhere. It's not a happy picture, but it is, I believe, a real one and a likely one. And what I try to do in the book is to explain how some of these disasters come out of what happened during the Third World. It is uh, during the Cold War in the Third World. And it's, it's to me essential to try to understand the immediate past in order to get closer to understanding some of these tendencies in our own day and age. Now, what about the effect, sort of the other way around, the effect of the Third World interventions on the Cold War, on the superpowers that dominated the international system during the Cold War era? Now, for both the winner and the loser of the Cold War context, for the United States and the Soviet Union, the effects of the era in many ways defined their futures. The losing state, Soviet Union, collapsed ending both Soviet socialism and the Russian Empire in terms of extension that had gone before it. By the mid-1990s, with the non-Russian republics gone, the economy in crisis, and a war in Chechnya that Moscow claimed was forced on it by intervening Islamists, but which many Muslim Chechens, of course, hail as an anti-colonial struggle, the former role of the Soviet Union as a global superpower already seemed like a strange dream to most Russians. In the naive cynicism that many of them put on in the wake of the fall, trying to negate their past and show themselves as citizens of the capitalist world, there were also solid portions of racism. Some people in the Soviet Union, particularly in the 1990s, uh, uh, claimed that um, the former state, the former Soviet state, had been taken advantage of by third world regimes and movements who, aided by corrupt officials, had helped themselves to the wealth created by the common Russian. And there were all these wild rumors that circulated. I spent quite a bit of time in Moscow in the early and mid-90s. Wild rumors about how much money had been given to the ANC in South Africa or to the um, anti-Pinochet resistance in, in, in Chile or to the Nicaraguans or to the PLO. Um, 
uh, in most cases, wildly inflated over what the Soviet Union had actually, uh, had actually supplied. Um, the point, again, I won't go further into that here. You could check it out in the book, or we could discuss it afterwards. The point, from my perspective, is not so much that the Soviet Union lost the Cold War because of its third world interventions, including Afghanistan. I think the Soviet presence in Afghanistan could have been sustained for a very long period of time, uh, in military terms and probably also in economic terms. Uh, what was the problem was the sense of decline that the lack of effectiveness that Soviet interventions in the third world was giving off at home. Instead of being points of pride that many Soviet third world involvements had been in the mid-1970s, by the late 1980s they had come become cause for concern in the sense that they didn't seem to be bringing the Soviet Union any benefit, or indeed going anywhere um, in, in real terms. So the problem was the effect in political terms that these interventions had, with of course the overall level of military expenditure, which did contribute very significantly, in my view, to the collapse of the Soviet Union. The point is, of course, that that military expenditure did not go into third world Interventions, mostly, it went into the strategic competition with the United States in terms of nuclear weapons and high <coughs> military technology. Now, when one of the Cold War superpowers collapsed, the other one, the one that we're in at the moment, went on to become what the French, I think, with a fairly good expression, called the hyperpower of our times, the hyperpuissance. Um, as it's becoming clear, I think, from much of the new Cold War history, the kind of history that is written now, um, often but not exclusively about the, the Third World, um, it is very unlikely, I think, that future historians will see the emergence of the United States as a hyperpower, as the dominant power within the international system of states, as being connected to the end of the Cold War. I think it's much more likely that the United States will be seen as emerging into that role already during the Second World War, and that the Cold War in that sense, in this bigger sense, really was a period of uh, global American dominance, in spite of the existence of the Soviet Union. It is, I think, right to argue that the Cold War never saw two equal superpowers. I mean, one was distinctly more super than the other in terms of what it was capable of doing and what it was capable of of achieving. Which brings us to another interesting point, um, which I discuss in the book and I'd like to do more work on in the future. And that's the role of the United States as the main revolutionary power of the 20th century in a global sense. One of the things that struck me when I was doing that book is that Karl Marx, writing in the mid-19th century about the United States, got it more or less right. I mean, the United States is a revolutionary power. It is a power that is out not just to move into the international capitalist system, but it's a power that's out to transform it and transform itself in the, in the process. It's a power that would sweep long-established economic, political, and cultural patterns before it on its way to global supremacy. And this is as true... I think, for the impact that the United States had on its friends and its allies as what it had on its, on its enemies. And this is one of the interesting points. Uh, those of you who have seen some of the discussion that came out after I published the Global Cold War, this is one of the points that is very much discussed. I mean, how much of what I say in that book about the U.S. role as a revolutionary power in the third world is also applicable for Europe? I mean, how much in terms of transformation took place in the, in the late 20th century in Europe really came out of the United States, not necessarily through, through pressure or an imposition, but simply because the United States was the dominant power uh, in the system in which the European countries found, found their place. Now, surveying these massive processes of change... Some historians who've looked at it, in my view, tend to confuse power with morality. Seeing the United States as generally a force for good in the world, they have concluded that an inherent morality is both the cause and the principle for America's international role. 
Such a nearsighted conclusion can only be explained, in my view, in ideological terms. The identification with the vision of the future that Washington represents is so strong that the moral qualities of that vision outshine all of its other aspects. And, of course, the debate with regard to the invasion of Iraq is a, is a reflection of that kind of, the kind of debate, or lack, lack thereof, uh, really. And there is a manner in this which is strikingly similar to some of the ideologically determined debates that went on um, within the communist states during the, the, uh, the Cold War era. Some of the dangers of it is, is quite clear. I mean, if one believes that there is a particular uh, moral grounding that belongs to one's own country only, because this is the country that points the way towards the future, well, then uh, the kind of fate that the Soviet Union ended up in uh, is a telling uh, warning about where the end point of that kind of thinking may, may end up may end up being. This is not the same thing, of course, as saying that the United States is not an immensely attractive society for many people, particularly in the, in the third world, um, because of its wealth, because of its openness, because of its uh, educational system. I mean, this is something we see on, a, on, almost daily, on an almost daily basis. But that, of course, does not excuse the violence with which the United States has attempted to influence the world, especially in Asia Africa and, and Latin America. Seen from a third world perspective, um, the results of America's interventions during the Cold War are truly dismal. Instead of being a force for good, which they were no doubt intended to be in most cases, these incursions had devastated many societies and left them more vulnerable to further disasters of their own making. So far, the combination of stable growth and stable democracies that the United States has ostensibly sought may, in my view, be visible in two half-states, in South Korea and in, in Taiwan, but is absent is in around 30 other countries in which the United States intervened directly or indirectly since 1945. So the record overall is, is not good, even in, in strict constitutional terms. And the human tragedies, of course, for friend and for foe that this scorecard reflects are, are enormous. Many of these are going on today. Many of the countries that went through processes of destabilization, such as Congo, which is a, a, a very good example, bringing us back to Conrad and, and his writing, of course not able to move out of these yet and are still, are still within them. What I'm trying to argue towards the end of the book those of you who had a chance to, to look at it, is very much about how this past influences the present and how we can try to understand our own day and age by looking at some of the interventions that took place um, during, the, during the Cold War. I'm not trying to suggest this in, in any uh, mechanical fashion. I mean, I think as historians, one has to be very, very careful uh, not to believe that the little bit of history that you look at is what determines everything for what the world is like today. I mean, it's always tempting to do that. But what one has to do, I think, and this is a particular, um, uh, a particular point, I think, to be made to people who are moving into the profession now, to graduate students and, and, and others, is to try to come clean about what one's own concerns are with regard to the kind of writing that one is doing. Try to think through how the present and one's own views of the present influence one's writings about the past. And I think this is one of the things that in many historiographical traditions, including the historiographical tradition of writing on uh, the history of U.S. foreign relations, has not always been clear enough or indeed acceptable enough. Presentism is seen as an enemy that should be avoided rather than uh, an unavoidable state uh, that one in a way has to, has to deal with, has to focus on, and in some cases has to, has to confront. The reason why I wrote the book, um, first and foremost, had to do with my own interests in trying to understand the intersection between great power policies and social and economic change in the third world. So what I tried to do was to combine these. Um, and, and to see what the effects of one 
where for the other. And I think if one is to look at the main contribution, at least in terms of debate, uh, that came out of the book, I'm pretty pleased with how that has gone. I mean, because this is where the focus has been as well. A lot of people have disagreed with me in terms of saying that what I do is to exaggerate both the role of the Cold War in the Third World and maybe especially the role of the Third World in the Cold War. On the latter, the point of criticism that has been made is that the Cold War was first and foremost about Europe. It started in Europe and it ended in Europe. Now, I have no, I have no problem with seeing both of those. I, I think that is true overall, that it started in Europe, more or less, although the Middle East and Iran especially, and to some extent China and Korea, played a very important role in the starting of the Cold War too, but primarily it was about conflicts over Europe. I also think quite some extent that it ended in Europe with the collapse of the Soviet rule in, in Eastern Europe and the, and the reunification of, of Germany. But where the, cold, where, where, the, where the Third World comes into it is in terms of the sense, Melefler's new book I think is, is, is brilliant on this, the sense both in the Soviet Union and in the United States, particularly after the early 1960s, of what this conflict was all about. That it was about something bigger than just the strategic and military confrontation in Europe. That it was about ideas. That it was indeed, as Mel's title indicates, a struggle for the soul of mankind. And this, I think, does imply quite a significant shift in terms of where we need to look to understand, particularly that latter phase of the Cold War, the intensity of it, and maybe even, and I indicate that in the book, why it lasted as long as it did. That was certainly not connected to the situation in Europe, and much more connected to what happened in the Third World. But what became most important for me as I was writing the book, and in part because of some of the, 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 my other travels and engagements that, that Bob, Bob alluded to, was more horses than camels, Bob, by the way, uh, um, was the effect that the Cold War had in the Third World. I mean, that became more important to me as I was writing the book than, 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 than what happened sort of the other way around. Because so many of those consequences are still with us, and because so very few people had really bothered to write on those. I mean, we have a very good literature um, that has been in existence for some time about the uh, international history links that exist between Soviet foreign policy and the Third World, between United States foreign policy and the Third World. But we have very little about the social consequences that these interventions had at the ground level. Uh, this calls for a different kind of research. I'm not claiming that I was fully successful in doing it in the book. It's a huge topic and very difficult to do. And as I said in my talk here yesterday, to some extent, uh, sociologists and anthropologists do this better than, than historians. But it's something that needs to be done. And it's something that historians, even if they're not going to do it themselves, Need to, be, need to be aware of. It is important when you deal with a conflict like the Cold War and the, the immense destructive influence that it had in the Third World to try to write history from the bottom up, to look at the effects that the collectivization processes that the Soviet advisors devised for Ethiopia had for peasants in the southern parts of the country. I mean, most of what has been written about the Cold War in Ethiopia hinges on Spigbrzezinski's famous phrase from his memoirs that the taunt lies buried in the sands of the Ogaden. The Ogaden being a... I, I have actually been there. Uh, it's a rather dismal desert in the, in the south, southwest of, of Ethiopia. What he was thinking about was, of course, the strategic competition between the United States and the Soviet Union for influence in the Horn of Africa. What affected people in the Ogaden, mostly Somali peasants, but of course the complete destruction of the livelihood that came out as a consequence of the Ethiopian revolution. So I'll conclude with that. I mean, there are many ways in which one can study the Cold War period meaningfully. And I'm not in any way trying to say in this book that what I've suggested is the only way, or indeed should be the dominant way, of approaching um, uh, the building of a future historiography, broader historiography, on the Cold War. Even the Cold War in the Third World. But what I'm trying to indicate is that there are ways of trying to combine high politics 
weight studies of what goes on at the grassroots levels that would give more meaning to both. It doesn't diminish any aspect of what other historians are trying to do at either of the two levels. But I do believe that there is more to be learned if one tries to combine them and tries to understand the world better through seeing both. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm happy with questions, yeah. Yes. Uh, they got into fracas after fracas in Africa and obviously in Afghanistan. So the whole basic idea of trying to contain them so they didn't The latter point is a fascinating one. Because when you think about this, I mean, if you go, I'll, I'll get back to the dominoes. But, but on this one, this is something that we're just starting to work on now. Because, again, there are historians, and there, are, there is a certain connection to the archives in terms of where the, where the forefront of research goes. And now, on, you know, being very much on the late, 19, late 1970s. And what lots of people are seeing working on the Soviet side is, of course, that by breaking out of the detente framework, the Soviet Union ended up spending itself into oblivion. And it's very concrete. I mean, it's much more concrete than I thought before we actually got to the archives and were able to, to look at this. Um, because the Soviet Union had told everyone, the Americans and so on people, that they had parity around 1973 or 74, but certainly before the Vladivostok Agreement was signed or initialed in, 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 in late 1974, uh, what they spent the rest of the 1970s doing was catching up, was, was getting to where they said they had been, to put it very very crudely, in 1973, 1974, because they'd been lying. There's no way the Soviet Union has strategic parity with the United States in 1973. It's even doubtful, I think, wearing my uh, very small and not very prominent uh, military historian hat, um, that they didn't even have it in 1979. And only got it um, in the early part of the 1980s, 82, 82 83. So, in that sense, yeah, I mean, containment of either sort, I mean, containment through trying to tie them in to the international system through a detente process, or more robust containment, didn't work. It was when the Soviet Union really started behaving as if it were the other superpower <laughs> that they really got into trouble. That's a very interesting line of, line of thought. Now, on the dominoes, yeah, I mean, uh, thinking in terms of dominoes on both sides makes a great deal of sense. But, of course, these dominoes, or the whole thinking about how dominoes work in the world, is, of course, based on a kind of ideological assumption, which is that these dominoes are turned against you because of the content of the political systems that they represent. Um, um, that's as true for the way the uh, United States saw Nicaragua in the, in, in the 1980s, as it is for the way the Soviet Union saw Afghanistan uh, in, the, in the late 1970s. Um, if, I mean, on the Soviet side, thinking was if uh, Afghanistan falls, it can only fall in one direction, and that is against us and with the, with the United States, um, which was, of course, a basic misconception. What really happened was that the people who were getting into power probably would have gotten into power anyway in, in Afghanistan, were as anti-American as they were anti-Soviet. So ideology matters whatever way one tries to think about dominoes. Um, I'm not claiming in this book, or have 
rather than claiming in any context, that ideology is the full story of the Cold War. I mean, the Cold War is about more than just a battle of ideas. Uh, but it's about that too. And in terms of understanding these images, these constructed images of how the dominoes would fall when, when they do fall, you know, these ideas play a very important role. You mentioned uh, you gave the United States a scorecard of roughly two in 30 mm -hmm. in terms of long-term mm -hmm. successful interventions, mm -hmm. the two being South Korea and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Do you speculate on what set those two apart and made them successful? It's, it is very difficult. I have, of course, uh, talked about that, but it's more wearing my East Asian uh, studies hat. Um, it's very difficult to say. Um, the fact that both regimes lost the war, I think, was very important in terms of the urge to remake themselves uh, you know, from the inside, not just to be dependent on American support, learning a few things about the need for further legitimacy, and it's very interesting. What, what's the first thing that both of these regimes do when they have survived, you know, almost miraculously survived in, in the 1950s? It is to turn towards projects of equality and justice, particularly in terms of land reform. Um, one of the most interesting things about Taiwan is, of course, that Taiwan is the country in the world that has had the most thorough land reform ever. Land reform on Taiwan was much more radical in its first phase than anything was carried out on the Chinese mainland. Uh, what the Guomindang did was completely changing the whole holding structure for land and giving most of the people who worked the land a direct stake, stake in the state that they were building. So it's speculation, but it's quite possible that these kinds of lessons did play a role in these particular cases. But of course, there are other issues here, you know, deeper, deeper cultural issues that are, that, that are at work. There is the overall relationship to the United States, which was slightly a diff an alliance of a different, of a different kind. Um, and there is the immediate confrontation by an enemy you know, that, that creates a need for a state that is more integrationist than what you find in many other cases. So that, that yeah, pure speculation, but that's the direction I would go in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you were Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if the fact that you just mentioned uh, this firing back is somehow related to this. Well, I mean, the, the, that's a very, very good question. I think, I mean, I do in the book deal quite a bit with the very complicated American approaches to concepts of control, concepts of empire. I mean, as you rightly said, going back to the founding of this state, uh, or even before that, in, in, in some cases, when you deal with, 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 with Native, Native Americans and and African-Americans. Um, but the reason why it doesn't come out in the same way in the main part of my story is this. The United States has yet to have the debate that you had in the Soviet Union after Gorbachev come, came to power about the uses of interventions, about the global role that the country is supposed to have, leading, of course, to the most remarkable aspect, probably, of the whole Cold War, uh, the Gorbachev leadership's unilateral decision to withdraw entirely from the Third World. Um, I mean, in, in an American political context, even with the present debacle in, in Iraq, I think that debate is impossible. I mean, it's very difficult 
in this country to say what Gorbachev basically said in 1987, 88, the Soviet Union does not have its primary role uh, in the world. It is really turned inwards. It's turned inwards towards its own problems and its own issues. Um, uh, I think even in those periods of, of 20th century American history that some people, in my view, mistakenly call isolationist, it is very impo- it, it's almost impossible to push that argument to the same extent as Gorbachev did. Um, which is one of the reasons why we need more research on the very end of the Cold War, I mean, with regard to this, and this remarkable um, aspects of, of Soviet policy during, during, during that period. What I'm saying in the book <coughs> is that some of it actually came, uh, some of it actually comes up before um, Gorbachev came into power. I mean, some of these debates really come out of the mid and late 1970s as much as the, the 1980s. Um, and they are very ideological in nature. Um, Soviet leaders who go to third world countries and wonder what on earth is the connection between their own state as they envisage it and the Mengistu regime in Ethiopia or the MPLA regime in Angola. I mean, one of the most wonderful letters that I quote in the, um, in the book is from the Politburo member Andrei Kirilenko, who went to um, Ethiopia right after the Soviets had basically won the Horn of Africa war for the Ethiopians in 1979, and writes back and says, Comrades, what kind of Marxists have we found? <laughs> you know, these people know nothing about Marx, nothing about Lenin. They are, you know, it's sort of a make-believe socialist state. So, you know, those are the issues that really then came to Gorbachev in 1985, 1986, didn't catch on immediately, but then became a wholesale critique of the whole role that the Soviet Union had played during the Cold War in the Third World. Yes, sir, watch it. Mm-hmm. Call China now yep. a superpower and about to be a superpower. India, mm. you know, the ones who weren't caught up sure. in the 50 I intervention sure. uh, directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do they play both during the Cold War and looking ahead now? Yeah. Well, I mean, China is, of course, the, I mean, the most important one probably to explain for the purpose that we are dealing with here. And China had a fairly um, involved approach to the third world as a whole in the 50s, and particularly in the early 60s, after the break uh, with the Soviet Union. But then came, and we explored this a little bit in the seminar I did here yesterday, to withdraw almost completely from this, from this competition because of the Cultural Revolution. I mean, turning inwards in a very different way from what Gorbachev did, but you know, turning inwards in the name of um, uh, the political project that was being built, the Maoist project within, uh, within China itself. I think this had very significant consequences uh, for the third world. It actually made, uh, this came to me after the discussion we had yesterday, but it actually made the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union much more clean cut. You know, and the, for many regimes post-1968, uh, the Chinese were no longer an option. And therefore, the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union was, you know, was what they had to, had to fill into. There are exceptions to this. I mean, the Palestinians, for instance, are an exception, but the Chinese continued their aid up to the early 1970s, at least. Um, but are, those are few and far between. By 68, because of the Cultural Revolution, China was more or less gone from the third world as a main, as a main player. India, uh, Brazil, are countries that I do not spend much time looking, on, uh, looking at in the book. I deal a little bit with the Brazilian role with regard to Latin America. Um, there's some very interesting research being done now on the Brazilian role, for instance, in the Dominican Republic in 1965 and in Nicaragua uh, as uh, uh, organizing some of the support for the Contras uh, later on. But what is mostly interesting with with Brazil is that it, of course, became a power, a regional power that the United States, particularly during the Nixon-Kissinger era, was very interested in cooperating with as a kind of regional 
policemen, but it never really fulfilled that role. And the reason for that was that in its, in, in its approach to third world affairs, the very hardline authoritarian military dictatorship in Brazil became increasingly close to its third world partners on, on, on many issues, which is something that is a, a very, very interesting process. There's a little bit of a literature on it, mostly written in Portuguese by Brazilian and, 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 and Portuguese scholars. But I hope there can be a spillover on, on that, or more of a spillover. There is some, there is, there is some uh, literature in English. That there should be mo more of that would be, would be very interesting. Yes? Yeah, I have two questions. One is, how has uh, Jerry Huff's argument in Soviet stories of the Cold War in the third world held yeah. up in Paris by the end of that debates about development, revolution development in the third world and prospects for them are actually shadow debates to form a home? Yeah. And second, uh, how often do you come across tail wagging the dog phenomenon between mm. Absolutely. I mean, the, the latter one first, and this, this was a very important part of what was happening. I mean, of course, there are limits. And the, when you do deal with the tail wagging the dog phenomena, I and mean, you, can, you can almost sort of imagine it, I sometimes do this with students, that you know, the, in terms of the speed of the tail wagging, there is a certain level you cannot get above. I mean, it, it can't sort of take the dog and sort of through him throw him all the way out, you know, of the game. So there are limits to how much uh, the tail uh, wagging would actually have as, a, as an influence, I think, overall. I think uh, very good evidence on that. In many of these cases where we, or in some of those cases where we suspected earlier on that local leaders have really had the final word, that turns out to be within limits. And those limits are set by the superpower themselves in all cases. Um, Afghanistan, I mean, the, the Soviet-backed leadership in Afghanistan is one of them. One may, have, one may argue that the PDPA leadership in Afghanistan played a very significant role both in uh, facilitating the Soviet involvement in the first place and then increasing it tremendously during the 1980s. But they did not set the parameters for what was actually going on with regard to that interventionism. I mean, those were set in, those were set in Moscow. And the same, I think, is true for the, the best example on the American side, which is the relationship to South Vietnam. Um, you know, the, much of what came on the, on the South Vietnamese side, particularly going to your, your, your first, uh, the first part of your question, the sense that if you don't assist us, we will collapse, only goes that far. I mean, when the decision is take, taken to withdraw, the United States withdraws, uh, in spite of what was being claimed rightly, it turned out, in Saigon would be the effects of that withdrawal. Now, on the first one, um, yeah, I think, I, think, uh, I think Hoff's argument is to, to some extent held up by the, by the archives, by what we're getting to see now. Not necessarily in terms of straw debates. I think they were real, I think they were real debates, but I do think they came to influence that these, some of these people saw socialism within the Soviet Union. I mean, that they started to see that some of the people who went to Ethiopia or who went to Vietnam or who went to Angola uh, or to Cuba started seeing some of the same weaknesses at home that they had been criticizing, you know, in terms of the, 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 the governments that they had been sent out to support. And some of them started questioning some of the basic tenets of Soviet socialism. It's very striking how many of Gorbachev's key advisors not just on foreign policy, but all-round advisors, came out of that environment around the International Department of the Central Committee, whose main task had been exactly that. I mean, someone like Anatoly Chernyayev, for instance, who became Gorbachev's closest <laughs> advisor and closest confidant during the latter part of the perestroika era, his main duties had been looking after uh, you know, socialist countries in the third world. And by the early 1980s, he found very, very few that he liked. And it's clear that some of that critique then spilled over on how he saw the Soviet Union. Yes, at the very back, over there. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask two 
Absolutely, absolutely. Now, on the on the on the first question, I I, I think um, well. Let, let me let me deal with the the the, the, the uh, final question, the last question first, and then I will deal with the deal with the other one. Um, yeah, I think I mean Cuba's role was was very significant during the latter part of the period that I'm talking about. And Cuba was not I mean, it's not the, the only one. There is a a whole set of patterns here on both sides. I mean, I refer to Brazil, for instance, with regard to Dominican Republic and Nicaragua. There are a whole number of patterns here that we are only starting to get to now because um, students are starting to research this. I mean, two of the graduate students that I've been working with over the last couple of years are doing those kinds of Several of them, actually, are doing those kinds of projects. But the ones that come to mind with regard to Latin America is um, Tanya Harmer, who has um, just finished her dissertation on um, U.S.-Cuban rivalry in Chile during the Allende regime, uh, documenting a much larger Cuban world in Chile than what had been known earlier on. Um, and um, Victor Figueroa Clark, who is a second-year um, graduate student now, who is writing on the role of Chilean exiles in Nicaragua during the Sandinista Revolution and, and after. Actually, fascinating material of Chilean communists and socialists who went to Eastern Europe or to Cuba, received military training, and then came to Nicaragua and participated on the side of the Sandinistas, even before the fall of Managua. So, I mean, those kinds of links which, of course, are so difficult to see in real time because we have very little, you know, except intelligence services, have very little information about them, um, is very much the kind of thing that, that people are, are looking for now. Uh, by which time, of course, I've now forgotten your first question. But <laughs> what, was, what was the first? The first question was what type of intervention? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think one has to distinguish between um, economic aid and even, even you know, economic uh, advisors uh, and military interventions. Um, but the problem is, of course, that uh, going back to the dominoes, John's point earlier on, an investment in a country, uh, be it economic or advisory, uh, can very easily then be an argument later on for at least limited military assistance in order to protect the investment that has already taken place there. I mean, this was one of the real uh, issues, I think, of the Cold War in the Third World, that it became so easy to argue, we are already there, and we have to do something to protect our guys against their guys. And very often, and this is particularly visible on the Soviet side, actually, more than on the American side, protect our guys in, in the limited sense. I mean, the, the, the Soviets and the East Europeans who are there from getting in, in harm's way, civilian advisors who are, who are there. So I do think that played a very important role. Yeah? Earlier on, you said something about work as peasants. Yes. As a, as a result of adapting to the Cold War. Mm-hmm. My question is, how much do you believe the so-called work as peasants as a result of the Cold War, compared to the fact that, well, after the states get independent, they may want to take their power and get kind of time to... Very good. Yes, I think that's entirely right. But I think the intensity of it and the destructiveness of it was much helped by the Third World alliances linking in to either of the Cold War partners. These states would simply not have had the capacity to carry out that kind of, in my view, imagined transformation or war against the peasantry if it hadn't been for the support that they received from, uh, from the superpower partners. This is the point. I, I think you were entirely right in saying that many, if not all, of these post-colonial states saw 
development, the way they envisaged it, as intimately linked to transforming, that is ab abolishing the peasantry. I mean, moving from an agriculturally based and family farming oriented um, form of agriculture over on to heavy industry. Basically, that's what development in the 60s and 70s is about, almost, you know, wherever you are in the third world. But there is an enormous difference, I think, and there are some <coughs> I mean, sociologists who worked extremely well on this, particularly French sociologist Bertrand Badi is one of those who've written extremely well on this, uh, in the capacity of carrying out those kinds of operations between small countries without major international support and those who get major international support. Now, China is, of course, the big, where there was a real massive war on the peasantry, um, is a case in between. It was big enough to use its own resources during the Maoist era to, to carry out these kinds of, of disastrous uh, experiments. But on the other hand, much of the inspiration for them they came from the Soviet Union and the kind of transformation that the Soviet Union had gone through in Mao's mind in the 1920s and 1930s. So there are all kinds of links here. I mean, one has to be very careful with this. But it's a fascinating field of research in trying to look at um, issues such as uh, deprivation, <coughs> hunger, dislocation, um, uh, urbanization, you know, people moving into shanty towns in the, in the cities, in the light of what happens in this broader Cold War setting. Yeah. Ah, right. As you know, there's like a huge some of peasants after the Soviet Union took over. And in my in my in my opinion, though, it's not as much as a war against peasants, but rather it is more of the struggle of politics that about the fact that the peasants can, I mean, basically voting for one of the of the former communists, there seems to be giving them a much better option than. Yeah, but I mean, then you have to take into consideration, of course, what happened in 1965 and the, and the, you know, the crushing of the Communist Party, um, which could very easily be seen as part of that, uh, you know, war on, war on the peasantry. In a slightly different sense, of course, than what happened in, in some other countries, but, but equally, equally deadly in many ways. Okay, I'll take a couple of more questions. Yes, yeah, over there. Mm -hmm. I'll get to you. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Um, if you would comment on the distinction between, can we be sort of forgetting that we would say that two or <coughs> 30 American interventions were successful? Mm -hmm. Successful in the sense that they produced democratic gov government. Mm -hmm. However, some of those, many of those interventions were um, successful in protecting American interests yeah. while they did not produce democratic government. Absolutely. Um, and later, I wanted, I wanted to ask your opinion on when as my Muslim friends would say, inshallah, uh, very soon. Um, this is, of course, where the Cold War view warped much of the debate that went on on this side. It's only that it persisted, to some extent, also beyond the Cold War. I mean, the sense that keeping a country from going communist was, was the main importance. I mean, that was what the, the, the strategic aim was, not democracy in a, in a broader, more representative form. Um, I mean, the, the problem here, of course, is, as we are very well aware of when we look around us today, is that it's quite possible to take the democracy and human rights and legitimacy concept and make that into the most interventionist argument that you can possibly have. So, in a way, this doesn't stop with the end of the, end of the Cold War. It, 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 becomes, it becomes transformed. Then it's about highlight... I mean, the logic goes a little bit like this, I think, certainly for the present administration. I think it was hugely important to the present administration, actually, um, uh, particularly in its first, during the first um, four years. The United States won the Cold War because of its 
military power and its moral ethical stance. And there was a combination of those two uh, elements that made the United States succeed. Um, the United States defeated the Soviet Union, defeated communism, because it was better. It was better both in terms of, bigging, of, of, of building you know, big, a big, heavy military force, but it was also better in the moral sense. It represented a much more attractive society, a democratic society. And out of that comes, of course, the conviction that that's the mission of the United States. I mean, that's what the United States then, co then continues, continues to do, and it's directly, in my view, into, into Iraq. Um, will this change? I mean, I write in the book that I think it's very, very unlikely, in spite of the uh, debates that are going on and have been going on in the United States with regard to interventionism, uh, that you will see a major change with regard to these kinds of approaches anytime soon. Uh, I think it, that will demand a much more basic and much more fundamental critique of some of the um, building blocks of U.S. foreign policy than anything that's been offered, for instance, in the current presidential campaigns. Yes. <laughs> Should we make that the, the last one, thing? Yes, right. some people are going to have classes at one thirty. That's fine. All right, you go ahead. Yeah. Depends how you see it. But I get the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then also, mm -hmm. so if you look at that uh, process of, the, I mean, even uh, their history, so China, uh, Taiwan, and Korea, mm -hmm. at the, uh, for example, uh, you mentioned the Chinese Cultural Revolution in uh, late 60s and 70s as a more, more like a civil war, mm -hmm. but maybe some other people might see that so their uh, sort of struggle to be independent mm -hmm. of Soviet sure. influence, sure. not necessarily being dependent on the U.S. Also, if you look at the South Korea, mm. uh, obviously in the 1950s, they started as sort of uh, uh, very dependent. Yeah, no, I, 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 get, but, yeah, but, I get the point. But if you look at mm -hmm. the 1980s in yeah. South Korea, but even though their regime was uh, military dictators uh, depending on, uh, uh, completely depending on uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policies, sure. but if you look at the more like aggressive people, yeah. and they start to becoming more anti yeah. Okay, okay, I, I, get, no, I, I get the point on this, but because I, I, and there are really two points that you're making, and both of them, both of them are very useful. I mean, the latter one is a, is a good reminder to myself and to many of us that disaster is not necessarily connected up to some form of superpower alliance. Quite on the contrary. I mean, China is the best example of this, of course, that what the, what the Chinese did, and you can imagine me being popular among my Chinese friends when I say this, but what they basically did was breaking with the Soviet Union in order to prepare a disaster for themselves at home. I mean, China broke with the Soviet Union, or Mao, the Mao leadership broke with the Soviet Union, uh, among other things, because it wanted to move its revolution, the Chinese revolution, further to the left, uh, to become more intense. Uh, the kind of policies that were represented by the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. So in that sense... Uh, it would be much better, certainly for the millions of Chinese who died during those two campaigns, if China had been less independent, if China had continued its alliance with the Soviet Union, the kind of gradual advance towards socialism that was envisaged in the 1950s. But even people in China today, and this is a very interesting point in terms of what you're saying, sens very, very uh, sensible people would disagree with me on that. They would say, oh, no, it was good that China stood up and became more independent. You know, almost irrespective of what that independence 
was used for. So, I mean, our critical faculties in terms of analyzing this as historians or as social scientists should not just be limited to a critique of the superpower impact. I mean, in many of these cases, uh, and China is a very good example, um, it was more than the tail wagging the dog. It was the local regimes um, that intensified the disaster that much of their populations went through in the modernization process. Now, the other aspect of your question is also um, a very good one with regard to um, China. Well, I mean, if you look at the East Asian uh, case, I mean, China is one of them, but the whole East Asian case, is there such a thing <coughs> as the third world? I mean, isn't it too, too disparate? Isn't it too broad to use as any meaningful category? I think it is. I think that's true in a geographical sense. I don't use the third world in a geographical sense. I use it as a political project. When I'm talking about the third world in this book, I'm talking about a certain kind of uh, states located in uh, Africa, Asia, and to a lesser degree in Latin America that, are, that see themselves as having the same problems coming out from colonialism in, in various forms. But first and foremost have a similar idea about what kind of states and what kind of societies they want to build. I mean, that's the third world project. It, it doesn't last very long. Uh, I think by the 1970s, we discussed this yesterday in the seminar I did here, um, very much because of this increasing differentiation, uh, much of the wind has gone out of the sails of the third world movement. Uh, and China's defection, of course, from this, I mean, from a... a, a planned economy, socialist orientation, and gradually towards embracing the market in, in the 1980s was crucial for all of this. Um, I think that's one of the things that, uh, maybe a good point to end on, but that if we want to look more closely at the interaction between what happens in the third world and the end of the Cold War, we have to look very closely at what happens in China and how that is understood elsewhere. Because after China has defected from socialism in a, in a broader sense, uh, there is very little life left in, in many of these projects uh, locally within what we had understood earlier as being the third world. Uh, so maybe that's the connection between the project that I did that I've been speaking about today and the project I'm doing now on, on China. But anyway, thank you very much for listening, and it's been a pleasure.